podcast for the DC Art Science Evening Rendezvous, or DAZER, a series of monthly evening salons exploring the intersections of art, science, and culture. DAZER is organized by cultural programs of the National Academy of Sciences in Washington, DC, and Leonardo, the International Society for the Arts, Sciences, and Technology. I'm your host, J.D. Tolosic. Each month, we bring artists, scientists, and other creative people together with a live audience in Washington, D.C. to explore the ways in which different perspectives can influence creativity and innovation. During this podcast, highlighting the May 19th Dazer of 2011, we'll hear from a variety of creative practitioners who are thinking about the tools of their disciplines, ranging from the applications of complex data systems to innovative use of basic elements of communication, such as words and gesture. And we'll hear how those tools and technologies can be honed in ways that benefit cross-disciplinary efforts. Harry Abramson is the Director of Art Services at Direct Dimensions Incorporated in Maryland. Direct Dimensions does laser scanning and 3D data modeling of objects for a wide variety of clients, including medical and aerospace companies, as well as artists and museums. 3D modeling uses scanning and imaging technologies for a variety of purposes, including the modeling and reproduction of objects, the preservation and conservation of such objects, or as Harry reveals in his example, to help art historians solve mysteries. During his presentation, Harry talked about how his team aided in the research being conducted at the National Gallery of Art. In this project, they compared three sculptures of a horse, all possibly created by Leonardo da Vinci. To do this comparison, Harry's team scanned each horse sculpture, and then each data set represented by a different color, either red, yellow, or blue, was then visually compared. Doing this helped curators from the National Gallery confirm what they had suspected were differences between one of the horses and the other two. We pondered where this, this horse came from. It, it, it looks very much like a horse that was drawn by Leonardo da Vinci. It appears to match up at the time. And there's three of these horses. All of them were exhibited together. And what we did was we scanned all three of these horses to try and figure out how they were related and in scale and what that might tell us about their origin. So we took cross sections of the data so we can look at them and that when we do that tells us a lot about how they relate to each other. So what we determined or what we helped Shelley and the conservation team at the National Gallery to determine was that yes in fact these are very close to one another in scale but more importantly in their features and that one could have been cast from the other. The blue one however was so much off in size that it was suggested that it was copied not necessarily cast off but inspired by which helped them to come to a conclusion that this particular horse that we were studying not only does it look like the original drawings of, of Leonardo but it was cared about enough to be copied. After Harry, we heard from Zeev Rosenzweig, Program Director of the Sci-Art Program in the Division of Chemistry at the National Science Foundation and a Professor of Chemistry at the University of New Orleans. Zeev's interest in how science relates to art began when he attended a symposium at his wife's insistence about the conservation of art objects. He noticed that in many cases, the artists were talking about the same thing chemists talk about, but using different language. And he suggested to NSF that they initiate a program that brings scientists and artists together across this language barrier. One way art is important to science, Zeeb notes, is in developing new ways to think about the dynamics of complex systems. 
Usually when scientists study a phenomenon, they try to isolate one variable in a system to understand its impact, but this reductionist approach is hard to employ when there are many variables. We are reaching a point in history, in time, where the reductionist approach has limitations. We're dealing with very complex systems. And if we, let's say, you assume that you will have eight, nine, 20 parameters to study, it will take many, many, many years for you to figure out a complex system with a reductionist approach. Works of art are examples of complex systems. They have many components. Artists use everything when they do their work. Paintings, there's a lot of pigments that are in this sample. Sculptures, a lot of types of materials in the sculptures. Buildings, a lot of types of components, all types of materials. Trying to analyze a complex system with a reductionist approach is very difficult. We have to develop new modes of operation, new modes of thinking, new ways to do experiment in order to understand those works of art. It's actually better for us to start with works of art because at least for recent works of art, we have documentation. We kind of know what they're made of. The collaboration between scientists and art historians is important because there are documents that we can go to and try to confirm with our new methods of measurement that actually we can have an agreement between the physical measurements and the documentation. In a lot of complex systems, we don't have this luxury. So you can view the collaboration between scientists and artists as a way to begin to approach complex systems in science. After Z's talk, we heard from science writer Michael Korist, who is taking what he sees as an original approach to nonfiction, weaving hard science together with personal narrative storytelling. In his most recent book, Worldwide Mind, The Coming Integration of Humanity, Machines, and the Internet, Michael knits two subjects together. He talks about neuroscience and optogenetics, the study of how particular genes affect which neurons are turned on and off during learning, and he combines this science with his own personal story, for example, attending a communication workshop in Northern California, an experience that was very meaningful to the author. Structurally, I interweave these two stories. So I will go on for a few paragraphs about my experience at the workshop. Then I follow that with several paragraphs about optogenetics, or functional MRI. But I do it in such a way that when I'm talking about one thing, I'm also really talking about the other. So when I'm talking about optogenetics, I'm also talking about intimacy and privacy. And when I talk about my experiences in the workshops, I'm also talking about the kinds of things we've lost and need to gain back with technology. While Michael may be taking a somewhat different approach than many science writers, that approach may not always be appreciated in the ways he would like it to be. I find myself just writing books that are hard to categorize. But that's because I'm trying to innovate a new way of writing about science, about human meaning, about communication, together in an integrated way that shows that these things cannot be pulled apart. So let me talk about the title for a moment. Now, that title looks as geeky as it's possible to get, okay? The coming integration of humanity, machines, and the internet, it makes it sound like a hard science book. I had a long argument with my publisher about that subtitle. I wanted to subtitle the book, The Coming Integration of Humanity and Machines, colon, A Love Story, because that would have captured better what the book is about because the book actually 
has stories in it about connecting with people. There's also a subplot in the book about how I used the skills that I learned in those workshops to meet, woo, and ultimately marry the woman whom I married last October. So the book is literally a love story. But it's also a love story about what humanity can become, about how we can use technology to become more richly human, more richly connected, rather than less. So my publisher really pushed back on my adding the words of love story to the title. Because they said, well, that means that booksellers won't be able to categorize the book. Even harder to categorize was the performance given by our last guest, Randall Packer. Randall is a composer, multimedia artist, and artistic director for Zachro's Inner Arts, a performance group that blends art and technology. For the Dazer program, Randall created a site-specific piece based upon his own post-reality manifesto, an evolving project that Randall is working on about social media and the integration of technology into our culture. For this, he crafted and pre-recorded a series of rhythmic loops to accompany the text he had written. During the performance, he read each stanza and then, using the motions of a musical conductor, he signaled the beats to his collaborator, Robin Shannon. Robin, who is deaf, then choreographed movement interpretation to accompany Randall's poetry and conducting. The two performed the piece, which Randall called the post-reality show, after only one rehearsal the night before. As Randall recited the poem and shifted beats, he gave Robin visual cues. In response, Robin devised his own interpretation of the text. I wanted to have a direct communication with Robin. We had talked about having an interpreter interpret what I'm doing so that he could, but I thought there's got to be a way that I can communicate directly through music, which is what I do as a composer. So I came up with this idea that I would use traditional musical cues, musical language of conducting, and we would just alternate, as you saw, and then Robin would incorporate rhythm into the signing. In the post-reality, there is no longer separation between anything and anybody. All things move in all directions simultaneously. This is the new world order. We rehearsed this for the only time and first time last night, and I was absolutely just amazed at what he came up with. It was just so interesting, and, and I feel like, you know, that this was an opportunity for Robin, who has been deaf since birth, has never heard music in his life, to give a musical performance. It is where our dreams and aspirations have no borders, no boundaries, and no limits. And with that as our presentation finale, we launched into Q&A with the audience, which expanded into an interesting discussion about the creation and use of tools, how they facilitate collaboration, and how the implications of new technologies should encourage us to think about how we use them. Randall mentioned how important collaboration between disciplines is. For many people, it's easier to see what the scientist contributes to collaboration knowledge of materials and objects, and how to use technology to make them interact in the desired way. But what does the artist bring? And this is what really needs to be said. 
you know, what the artist brings is a kind of social consciousness, uh, a concern about the impact of all this technology on the human condition. And so the engineer, in collaboration with the artist, is able to incorporate that way of thinking into their work. Harry sees scientists and industry driving the development of certain tools to meet their needs and sees artists as driving and expanding the creative use of those tools, sometimes because the artists are working under different conditions and have different goals. We have a particular artist who's quite famous and um, when he started calling on us to help him solve problems, little did we know that when I went there and said, oh, we help aerospace companies make airplanes, you know, we can't make mistakes. If we give them bad data, the the airplanes don't fly. And so he felt that whatever he was th asking us to do, we'd already done for NASA, so to speak. But he and many other artists have pushed our company to limits that no other engineering firms or manufacturing-based or industrial companies have asked us t to do. The art world is doing it just because in many ways. They're not necessarily trying to do it the cheapest way, sometimes they are, but they often want to do it the best way and they push our ability to use the technology. There's no question that while the industrial side has given us the reason to have the tools, it's the art side that's pushed us the most on how to use the tools. Both Michael and Zeev emphasize that these tools aren't used to assess the art as being good or bad that they aren't some sort of substitute for aesthetics, in the same way that social media isn't a substitute for face-to-face -face interaction. Tools have their place, and it is often up to those welding the technology to make sure the tools are used to appropriate ends. No question technology today will have a profound effect on, on humanity. We're seeing it every day. But let's not forget that at the beginning of the 20th century, there was the invention of airplanes and air traffic had a profound effect on humanity, allow people the freedom of movement in ways that they couldn't imagine before. So, yeah, every technology, when it comes about, will have a positive impact, and it will have a negative impact, for sure. Facebook could be used for, to facilitate communication between people in a good way and in a bad way. And it's our choice to make. Taking the long view, Michael says he feels optimistic that overall we'll tend toward using our technology wisely, but that perhaps we've got some learning to do along the way. I'm optimistic in the long term because if you look at the long arc of history, there's a pretty impressive progress toward better science, better social structures. I mean, we're certainly far better off than we were in the 13th century, okay? so. I like to take the long view that we're seeing a blip, a, a big one, you know, where we're having trouble a lot of fundamental issues. But I'd like to think the immune species will prevail in the long run. Thanks for joining us for this podcast, sponsored by Cultural Programs of the National Academy of Sciences. Dazer is a monthly community-centered salon in Washington, D.C., organized by the Cultural Programs of the National Academy of Sciences and by Leonardo, the International Society for the Arts, Sciences, and Technology. For more information on Dazer programs and other events and exhibitions at the Academy, visit us on the web at www.cpnas.org. I'm J.D. Tolosic.